welcome back to the Earn It Podcast. Actually, on a podcast tonight, the line we have Allison Beatty, who's pretty involved with um, Yankee Air Museum tribute roses. Allison, thank you for being here tonight. Thanks for having me, Austin. It's a pleasure. No worries. So, can you give us a thirty-second overview of who you are, where you grew up, um, where where you're at now? Yeah, sure. So, my name is Allison. I grew up in Michigan. I went to undergrad in Texas, and that is where I learned about state pride. I watched all the Texans um, take so much pride in the state of Texas, and it made me really proud of Michigan. So I came back here for grad school, and that's when I found out about Yankee Air Museum and all the fun and incredible and amazing stuff they do. And um, that's where I've been volunteering ever since. Great. So can you tell us how you got interested in aviation and the Rosies in, in specific? Yeah. So I would say that aviation is in my blood. Um, I found an old t-shirt of my dad's that says bring a B-2040 Yankee Air Museum that was from like 1984. And my grandfather actually built a replica Sopwith Camel in our garage or in his garage. And it's currently at the Kalamazoo Air Zoo. He finished everything but the wings before he died. And the Air Zoo finished the wings. They built them to the exact specifications from Sopwith. So yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, We've always been an aviation family. And um, my dad also worked at the Willow Run Bomber Plant. He was a transmission engineer when GM owned it and was making transmissions there. Mm -hmm. I never had any particular knowledge of its World War II history. I even went there as a kid um, with my dad once, and I didn't know. But when the Save the Bomber Plant campaign came around, um, and I started finding out about its history and about how many women had worked there and what it meant to the world, it really inspired me that this great history was hiding just beneath the surface in Michigan. Yeah. So for those who don't know, can you give me a five-minute brief history of the bomber plant, why it's important, because I know, you know, obviously, but the listener out there may not. So Yeah, and man, thanks to the listeners for tuning in. Um, This is some pretty incredible history. The bomber plant was the brainchild of Edsel Ford, who was Henry Ford's son. And Henry Ford did not let Edsel fight during World War I because he was going to take over Ford Motor Company, which he did at age 26. And he always felt that he had wished he had done more with his cohort um, who fought in World War I. So when World War II came around, Edsel reached out to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and asked, how can Ford Motor Company help during the war, Mr. President? And what Roosevelt said was, we need airplanes. Our Air Force is the 18th strongest in the world, coming in just behind Romania. And the only way that this war is going to be won is through air superiority. And this was back in like 1939, 1940, before um, the U.S. had even entered the war. So Edsel convinced his dad that we need to build a factory from scratch to make airplanes. And we've been tasked with making the B-24 Liberator Bomber, which I'm guessing most of your podcast fans will know exactly what that is. But just in case they don't, it's the World War II airplane with two engines on each side, a snub-nosed tail, and two tail fins. Mighty bomber of the sky. 
And Ford took a group of engineers out to consolidated manufacturing in California because they were making them there, but they were only making like one per month. They were doing a pretty bad job because they were making them all unique. So um, Edsel's leading guy, Charles Sorensen, vice president of production at Ford Motor Company, an immigrant from Denmark, said, you know what? We're going to build these airplanes the way we build cars, and we're going to build them on assembly lines. We're going to bring in all the sub-assemblies from different factories and put them together faster and more efficiently than anybody else ever. And that is what Willow Run was built to do. It was the largest factory in the world when it was built, 3.5 million square feet, soon to be eclipsed by the Pentagon at 5 million square feet. And people say around here that it had a mile long assembly line. And what they're referring to are the two half mile long parallel assembly line tracks that took the airplanes all the way down um, from soup to nuts, as they say. And at first, the airplanes did not run very well. There's the nickname of the factory that was, will it run? Because the answer was usually no. But then um, they really got their act together. They stopped making um, additions and fixes at every point along the line and just switched to the model version where they would put all the fixes into subsequent models. And they really sped up their productivity and got it to the point where they were pushing a bomber out every 55 minutes. So that's why we are so yeah. proud. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I can remember like 2014. So I was nine, no, yeah, eight or so, you know, driving past in this this huge building because by then or 2013 or whenever it was still standing. Anyway, the the point is, is it was a huge building and like even the section that the museum managed to save, which we're going to talk about next year, but it's big. So can you talk about, I'm going to skip around the island here a little bit. So can you talk about how the Air Museum went about saving it and why they wanted to save it? I mean, the why is fairly obvious, but. Yeah, well, you know, maybe it's not obvious to people outside the Rust Belt who might just say, oh, it's just a bucket of bolts. But in fact, it's so much more than that. I mean, Willow Run was the most famous factory in the country during World War II. It was the poster child of everybody like coming together and figuring out how to solve a complex problem that needed to be solved in faster than anybody had the resource to to solve. And they actually came together and made it happen. And coincidentally, Yankee Air Museum was looking for a new property to perhaps move into at some point because we had the hangar fire in 2004 where our previous museum burned to the ground. So finding a way to save a small portion of this building even if it was just to house so many of the awesome Cold War era airplanes that we have, made perfect sense because it was such an important part of local and national and even global history. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So the other part that we're going to talk about here, obviously, is Rosie the Riveter. So basically, for those who don't know, we talked I talked about this with Hannah in another episode, but the men were going off the war. And so really, the only people left were the women. You know, a lot of people didn't really think that women could do these jobs, but they turned out to do it extremely well. You know, so can you talk about kind of how women started to get involved in the bomber plant and kind of how the figure of Rosie the Riveter emerged? Yeah, I think you really summed it up quite well there. Um, it was a job that a lot of people didn't think they could do, and then they ended up doing it quite well. The, it, it arose out of necessity, but first and foremost, because there was a lot of quote unquote scientific evidence back then that women were not emotionally stable enough to work in factories. Um, And it it, it hurts to call that quote unquote scientific evidence, but that is what was believed at the time. But when all hands were on deck, 
they decided we don't have a choice. There aren't enough men left. We have to bring women into the factories. And women, of course, were more than up for the challenge. They shattered all of those preconceived bad science. Exactly. Um, And showed that women uh, not only were capable of doing it as well as the men, in some cases, they were able to do it better because they had an excellent eye for detail, excellent motor skills. One of my favorite books on this subject is Charles Hyde's Arsenal of Democracy book. There's two books out that are called Arsenal of Democracy, but this one is by Wayne State University history professor emeritus Charles Hyde. And he talks about how by the end of the war, the number of female inspectors had risen at almost an exponential rate because women were so good at checking for quality and they would never let their buddies slide by with slipshod work. So women came into their own and proved that they could do everything the men could do um, and a lot of things that they couldn't do. And for some of the things that required like heavy lifting or stuff that women didn't have the physical strength to do, it pushed the factories to create new mechanisms that increased productivity. So they really contributed a lot. Yep. So I might be, let's say hypothetically, I'm a person out there who sees, you know, Rosie the Riveter. And for a lot of, you know, for a lot of people, they may understand, you know, why, you know, the coveralls, this headscarf and all that. So can you talk about kind of how the figure of Rosie the Riveter emerged and kind of what? Yeah, it was a joint effort, in my opinion, between um, the government uh, with their posters trying to encourage women to get into the workforce and Hollywood. So, and in the third category, you had the women who were actually doing the work and setting the trends. So on the one hand, you have the government that's like, we need to convince the women that everything we told them about how they need to stay at home is wrong. We need to show them that their place is in the workforce. So you had all these posters that are like, my husband is happy that I'm in the war, woman in coveralls and a bandana. Or um, there's this beautiful poster set that exists that's a woman putting on her coverall, her last coverall snap, and her daughter is doing the same thing. And it says, um, someday she'll be a worker too, or something like that. So it's showing that mothers have a place in the workforce as well. So basically they were trying to get every um, like female demographic in society into the factory. At the same time, you have Hollywood. Um, so the song, Rosie the Riveter by the Four Vagabonds, that came out pretty early in the war. There were also a ton of movies. One of them I know had Catherine Hepburn in it. Some of these movies are hard to find, so I don't even know the names, but there was one about the wasps, the female uh, pilots. There was another one called Parachute Girl that was about um, the flight nurses. So there were all these movies and songs and probably radio programs and stuff like that coming out too. And then thirdly, there were the women themselves who were getting into the factory and being told, okay, um, sports aren't working so well. You're going to have to wear slacks. And some of them wanted it. Some of them resisted it. But pretty much everybody very quickly found out, like, it's no problem. Women can wear slacks just fine. There was actually a lot more resistance sometimes to wearing the bandana because people had their hairstyles and they didn't want to. Um, but safety was paramount, right? Um, an accident means that you slow up the assembly line if you get your hair caught in a welding machine or a lathe or something like that. Um, So the bandana in some ways was more of a thing that was resisted than the overalls, but everybody fell into line pretty quickly. Um, And so working together, the government, Hollywood and the women themselves, um, that is how like the image of Rosie was shaped. Yeah. And there was a pretty famous, um, what was it? Norman Rockwell, right? Who did a very, a very famous 
painting of a Rosie, you know, rolling up her sleeve and all that. Yes, so. that's right. Um, and Norman Rockwell actually did another one as well that is less famous, but I love it. And um, it's from like 1943. And it's a woman who's dressed like Uncle Sam. And she's got everything oh, yeah. on her back. She's got like a watering can and a jug of milk and a radio set. And there's a rivet gun on there. And it really represents how women just took on every responsibility at once for the war. And like that resonates with me even today. So yeah, for those who haven't seen it, you should go Google it. It's pretty cool. So can you talk about why? So the person, the listener might out there might not think, oh, this isn't really that important. You know, why should I care? So can why should the listener care about this? Yeah, um, why should they care? Uh, there are two big reasons that you should care about this even today. The first is what they did was amazing in that historical context to be told all your life that you're not good enough and you're not smart enough. And then suddenly to be told, we need you. Can you help us? All of these women did that and they did better than anyone thought was possible. Going back to Charles Hyde's book again, um, that you can't quote me on these exact numbers, but the proportions are correct. Um, the Japanese workforce was at 30% capacity because they did not allow their women in the factories. They did not have slave labor. The German workforce was roughly at about 50% capacity because they had some women in the workforce and they also had slave labor. The United States workforce was at 84% capacity wow. due to inviting the women. And again, wow. I might not have the, the tenth, the once digit correct. But the proportions are roughly correct and you can read his book for the exact statistic. So when you look at it that way, it was just a matter of time before the United States would be able to produce the material needed to defeat the Axis. And then it was up to the men to finish the job on the front lines. So what those women did in 1940s, like 80 years ago, is amazing just for what they did. But the second reason that listeners should care even today is because the, the motivation that got those ladies through can still be used by us today to face our own problems. If we look at them and we say, they didn't know if they were gonna win, they didn't know if they could do it, but they decided to try and they had grit and determination and perseverance and teamwork and they did a job nobody thought was possible. And that is still extremely important for us today. So that's why Rosie inspires me. And that's why I think her popularity is only growing. And that's why I'm really proud of Yankee Air Museum for embracing that mindset. Yep. Well, you hit it right on the head there. So, and I remember, you know, the Germans, it's all for this other countries, like, why wouldn't you, you know, let women work? Because the American, we did it and we did it extremely well. Yeah. We're lucky that they didn't and that they were held back by their prejudices in that instance. Yeah. Well, you wonder what would have happened, you know, if there was a German Rosie the Riveter or a Japanese, you know. I mean, now yep. we're getting into the realm of hypothetical history. And this is still. definitely, I think, um, something that lends itself well to support for democracy, because democracy had that open mind that was like, you know what, we need to try a new solution because this one isn't working. They were not held back by that dogma. Mm -hmm. Yep. So let's track, let's transition here to talking about the bomber plant. How did you first start to get involved with Rosie's? And um, can you tell people a little bit about the tribute Rosie's and what that is? Yeah. Oh, of course. Um, so the way that I first got involved was um, I saw those signs in 2014, probably the same ones you did, um, that were like, we can do it again, save the bomber plant. And I didn't go to the website right away. But when I did, 
I really wished I had gone earlier because they were right up against their deadline and they needed like $5 million. And I was like, oh, what would I have? I wish I could um, share this with my friends, but it's so late. You know, we're not, they're not going to make it, but they got an extension. And I asked myself, like, what could I do to make more people go to the website, learn about this and donate? And what I came up with was what if somebody was dressed up as Rosie the Riveter and brought the campaign to life, so to speak. So I reached out to the campaign and asked if they wanted someone um, who could do that. And they said, sure. So I went out dressed as Rosie the Riveter and I stood at a busy intersection with a big sign that said, savethebomberplant.org. And I waved at every single car and got them to honk in support and stuff like that. And it raised a little bit of local publicity. And um, then I started getting invited to go to other Yankee Air Museum events. And I met more women who were like, I want to do that too. Um, and that is how the Tribute Rosies originated. And more and more people started thinking it was fun and they wanted to do it as well. Yeah. Well, that's a great, that's a, that's a good way to raise publicity. You know, waving yeah, a sign never so hurts. Too. I should go out and do that with my podcast thing sometime. Oh yeah, totally. You could be like Charles Lindbergh or something like that. Um, and Hannah right. could be Amelia Earhart or something. Yeah. No, sorry. Not going to happen. Not based on my free time nowadays, anyway. But well, I'm sure you're filling your free time with good stuff as well. But if you need that in the back pocket, there you have it. I'll contact you about costumes. There we go. We can have Rosie the River, Charles Lindbergh, and uh, Amelia Earhart. Yeah, and now that Yankee Air Museum has the Ford Trimotor, um, you guys would be uh, historically correct. Historically correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, rabbit trail, but a good rabbit trail. So. What were your feelings when you first stood in the bomber plant? How did you feel about that? Oh, gosh. Well, when I went there as a kid with my dad, it was enormous and dark and like scary. And all I remember was like, follow the yellow line. Um, but when I came back as an adult, um, it was so much more meaningful to me. It just it feels like it's still alive. It feels like you can see the next bomber coming down the line. It's full of history. It's full of potential. You can almost hear like the sounds of riveting. It's just, it's a pretty magical place. And especially um, if you get to be there during a cold storage tour or something like that, or any of your listeners, I mean, um, and see the doors open at the same time. I mean, it just instantly takes you to like the mighty accomplishments there. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I've been, I've been inside there a couple of times. You know, it's yeah. a dark cavern and it needs work, but it's still pretty cool. Yes, and it's like always bring a jacket because no matter uh, if you're there in the dead of August, it's still nice and cool in the middle. Actually, it was nice because the one time I went into it, it was like, I don't know, 80 degrees out on the tarmac. So radiating upwards and in a flight suit, you know, brutal. But you go in there and then it's freezing. So. <laughs> yeah, good way to cool off. Of course, the guys in there hate it in winter and they don't, they don't even work in winter. But Yeah, it's cold. Yeah. So can you, let's try to transit. Transitioning back to the Tribute Rosies, their listeners might have heard of several world record attempts um, for most women dressed as Rosie the River. So can you tell me about that and how you went about organizing it? Sure. Um, I came on board for the 2015 Rosie World Record because I was in charge of organizing Yankee Air Museum's Homefront Victory Celebration which was organized by the Spirit of 45 campaign, which is this national campaign to commemorate the end of the war. And I think that's super great because we don't really like know or remember the feelings of like relief and joy um, of mm -hmm. the worst war in history being over. 
And the Spirit of 45 campaign kind of brings that to life. Um, so for Yankee Air Museum in 2015, we had all these cool things. We had um, a scavenger hunt in collaboration with Belleville Area Museum. Um, we had a parade through Ypsilanti Township and a presentation at Michigan Theater and a swing dance at the museum. But lo and behold, um, the national, um, what is it called? I'm trying to remember. Uh, the, um, it's the, oh man, I'm trying to remember the name of the park in California. It's the Rosie the Riveter World War II Home Front National Historical Park. And their idea for the Spirit of 45 campaign was to take the Guinness World Record. And they did it that same week that we were holding all of our events. And they got over a thousand people. And we were like, like that's a lot of people. Um, but the organizing co-chairs of the um, Homefront Victory Celebration for Yankee Air Museum um, were really passionate about this world record. And there's like a banner in the bomber restaurant in Ipsy that says, this is Rosie country. Um, yep. plug for the bomber. It's like the best restaurant ever. Easily, yeah. Yes. Um, and so the co-chairs were like, we need to take this back. We need to take this world record. And so the um, like Homefront Victory Celebration Committee almost like pivoted immediately to like planning for the world record. Um, mm -hmm. And we did it. Um, we got like 1800 people and then California took it back again. And they got, I think just, I think they got like 2000 people or something like that or 2,500, um, and then we took it back again in 2017, and we had like 3,700 people. And I know that the park in California was um, going to have another attempt last summer, which got canceled because of COVID. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think this is an amazing, like, friendly rivalry that's going on. Um, so I'm yeah. watching them, and I hope that as soon as it's safe, um, they pick up the torch again, because it's just so amazing. I mean, um, one of the things that you have to do is all stand together for five minutes in an enclosed area. And so the way that we would um, fill the time was to sing together. And when you have thousands of female voices, um, or just thousands of voices, because there were some guys there too, mm -hmm. singing the national anthem. I mean, it's just like you get chills. It's amazing. Yep. Yeah, I can remember, um, when was it? Sometime a long time ago, somebody handed out the flyers for the event at church so there was like there was signs of it on the poster board in the lobby i remember there was a couple of ladies from our church who went over and did it wow so. good for them <laughs> yeah i probably saw them but it was a little bit like where's waldo you know you can't even uh -huh. you can't even tell well after how many faces 1800 people 1800 faces mm -hmm. i get blanked out at about 50. <laughs> Oh. Yeah. So let's talk about um, the other the other big part of the Tribute Rosies are the drill team. And I can remember because I've seen you guys in parades for a while, you know, before yeah, I started working yeah. at the museum. So can you tell me about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I did some homework for you, actually. And I dug up the original conversation that I had with my mom about the drill team. It was over Gchat on Thursday, June 19th, 2014 at 9.50 a.m., I wrote my mom, just had a genius idea. I was very proud of myself, I guess, about Rosie's. We need to march in the Detroit Thanksgiving parade with our new message. Talk about publicity and we can be swing dancing or some other memorable thing. And my mom, you can tell, was not gonna commit to this fully because she wrote, I like it. And then I wrote, <laughs> 
two. Okay, back to work. Um, (laughs) So that's how it all started. And um, it has grown from there quite a bit. And um, this is one of the most fun things. In fact, today, we just had our first practice for this year. Um, because it's like you engage with the crowd, you do the chance with them, you make them really proud of this rosy heritage. This is rosy country. And it's just a really fun spinoff of the whole Yankee Air Museum project. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So for people who are maybe interested in getting involved with the Tribute Rosies or with the drill team, where can they go to find out more? They can go right to Yankee Air Museum's website. There's a um, there's a tab on there that says like events or join us and there's a become a volunteer section. And in that section, there's literally a sign up for becoming a Tribute Rosie. So we're always looking for new members and I would encourage anyone to go to www.yankeeairmuseum.org and look at all the other tabs too while you're there because there's so many cool things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they've recently expanded their website pretty big, actually, over COVID, you know. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah, it's pretty cool because it went from just being, you know, a donate tab and a volunteer tab and some other stuff to now they've got, you know, activities for kids and local museums and stuff like that. It's pretty neat. They pulled together the whole creativity hanger, which is like a series of activities that kids can do um, just like in the drop of a hat for COVID. And not going to lie, I can just keep the website on my home screen and just look at the graphic of the B-17 flying over for a while. I'm trying to put together a slideshow for Yankees, so I'm like looking at a lot of their pictures on the website. And Mm -hmm. I do just keep the homepage up to see the bomber like flying over. It's just so great. Yeah. Well, being a member of the B-25 crew, I have to respectfully disagree with you um, and say it would be better if it was the B-25, but... Uh, I would, um, I would welcome having both like that would just extend the video for me. Um, and for sure, like getting some a picture of the B25 doing like an aggressive turn or something like that would be sweet. So I'll send you a couple. I have some pictures. Thanks. Yep. So let's also talk about how has COVID impacted or affected volunteering at YAM? Because I know for me, we weren't in the hangar from, at least I wasn't from May to August. You know, yeah. so how did that impact it? It's been bad. I mean, not going to lie. It's been really sad. Everybody misses each other. Um, You know, I think everyone around the world is suffering. Um, And obviously what we miss as volunteers can't compare to the hardships that some people face, but nonetheless, it's our communities that keep us grounded and happy. Right. And Mm -hmm. Yankee Air Museum is pretty much one big family. So we've missed our extended family a lot. Um, That being said, COVID has um, basically given the Rosies the opportunity to pivot to some new um, activities and Mm -hmm. the Rosies have done a great job. And I would like to specifically celebrate um, the actions of two Tribute Rosies in particular. The first, Maggie Morris. Um, Tribute Rosie Maggie has pretty much single-handedly organized the Rosies to help out with retail at all of the air adventure rides. And she started this over the summer um, and it was safe because it was out in the open and in the hangar. Um, and it's been so fun. Um, and so she's gotten a really dedicated group of retail Rosies out there. Um, and this has been a new way that the Rosies can help the museum a lot. So I'm really proud of her for that. And I also want to give a shout out to Tribute Rosie Brenda Presnell who, um, again, almost single-handedly, just like Maggie, has started the Rosie Riveting Program, where the Rosies are teaching members of the public how to do elementary riveting. And you can make your own miniature B-24 bomber. 
Um, and uh, Brenda worked with um, Julie Osborne, the curatorial director, to set this up and run this. And they've just made their 100th bomber. Basically, they're on their way to overtaking Willow Run's record, I like to think. Um, so these were two opportunities that we hadn't thought of before COVID. And I'm very proud of these two Rosies and all the tribute Rosies for making this pivot and coming up with even more exciting ways to help the museum during COVID. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I remember, um, when was it? I was in the museum sometime when they were doing that program. Um, of course, I already know how to rivet, but for people don't, it's pretty cool. You could even do a publicity thing where you could be like, you know, try and help us pass the record of bombers or, you know, with riveting the little kits. It might be a publicity thing. I agree. We're sort of evolving this idea right here. Like, this is the first time I've ever thought of it. And I like your idea of making it a publicity thing. So maybe we'll try to get 200 before going after the 8800 record. But I think yep. you know, we're on our way. Yeah. Well, 8800 is a lot for anything. Yeah. So. Again, kudos to the Riveters. They're incredible. So is there anything that I have not actually know from question, sorry. Um, what would your advice be to a person who's trying to go after this? A person who wants to volunteer at the museum? Or as a Rosie in general? I would Either say- Either tribute Rosie or volunteering in general. My biggest advice is introduce yourself to everyone over and over again, and maybe wear a name tag because I've been volunteering here a long time and I'm still learning everybody's names, mm -hmm. um, but everyone is friendly. So don't just, um, don't just keep going like, Hey, um, but not really know their name. Just always walk up and say, I'm Allison. What's your name? Um, because then you can really start developing those friendships that last a lifetime. And the same with the tribute Rosies, because we make it even harder because sometimes we're all dressed the same. Um, so, so you can't, tell you can't just hard. say, hey, Rosie, it's not going to work. So introduce yourself and become part of the family. I had a question. Now it's gone. Is it the wasps? No. Actually, yeah, you can talk about that. So how did you get involved posing as a wasp? And what are your, yeah, well, let's go with that. The wasps evolved um, because my boyfriend, Ryan Knapp, he is the best reenactor I've ever met because he's 100% about authenticity. Like he's a mm -hmm. historian at heart, um, even though he went for aerospace engineering, he's actually a secretly a historian. And so he always tries to be super authentic. And um, when he found out that I like to do tribute Rosie activities, he's like, have you ever thought about doing um, any other impressions of women in World War II? And I said, I've always wanted to be a wasp, but I don't you know, I don't, it's not like putting on a bandana and a jumpsuit. There's like real stuff involved. And um, he has shown me like how to research and he helped me get the equipment. And here are, here's my homework. Um, I've got a bunch of like wasp books. And nice. the thing that I like about it most of all is watching people's eyes get wide when you open the door to the discussion about all of the other things that women did during the war that were insanely cool. Like um, there were flight nurses who were taken prisoner of war, who carried firearms, um, who were POWs. There were female fighter pilots in Russia. Um, there was the night witches in Russia who were um, not the fighter pilots, but the bomber pilots who were so stealthy when they dropped bombs that the Germans themselves called them the night witches. Um, and of course there were the wasps, the women's auxiliary, or sorry, the women's air force service pilots. And so a lot of times I think, um, People think it's like a new thing when they see uh, female fighter pilots now, 
And I just love making people aware that like women have been doing stuff like this for like 80 years. Yep. Not to mention one of the most successful spies of all time in World War II was a woman. She was an American right. and she only had one leg, Virginia Hall, if you want to go Google her story. Um, yep, I've read so, her story. It's, it's fascinating. I believe it. I know you have because you are also a historian at heart and so well-read, um, especially for your age. Um, but most of the time, people have no idea that women have already done all this cool stuff. So I genuinely appreciate um, the, the role that like pinup girls um, like played in World War II for morale. I think it's super important, but also um, like nobody knows about the wasps. Nobody knows about the night witches and telling their story is my passion in addition to the Rosies. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, Hannah and I talked about the night witches and the wasps and everything else um, in a previous episode. So the listener will hear that. Um, but yeah. Thank you for being, um, for making sure to tell the stories of all of these people who have not had a voice. What can I say? Yep. Yeah, we talked about, um, yeah, the first episode in this, um, we're doing an overview episode for the poor listener out there who has no clue what anybody's talking about, you know, for all the history. And then we're doing an interview with Delane. Um, have you met her? I have. She's an inspiration. Yeah, she's incredible. And then you. So, yeah. So what does the future hold for you? What are you going after if the Tribute Roses? What can people expect to see? Ooh, great question. So the future for me is I have realized that my passion is inspiring people in Michigan about their heritage and about their future. That for me is what the Tribute Rosies are all about. Um, it was inspirational to me to see that people turn to Rosie the Riveter during the COVID pandemic once again to find the strength to get through this pandemic. And it's like, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Like, obviously this message resonates and is only growing in importance. And that message started here. We are Rosie country. Um, so I just love helping Michiganians see that and take pride in that. And so wherever I go, whatever I do, I'm going to be working on helping Michiganians um, take pride in their heritage and carry it forward. Um, more specifically, um, I started taking ground school this summer and I passed my FAA knowledge exam. So once hey, good for, you. for me, Thank you. I know you're studying too. Have you taken your knowledge test yet? No, I'm taking online ground school through EAA and, right. I, joined civil, and I joined Civil Air Patrol. So hopefully, hopefully you can, you can get flight training scholarships through them. So yeah, you might be able to. And I mean, again, I think you're still fairly young, but Yankee Air Museum themselves offer some scholarships. So maybe like once you get high school age, um, you should look into that. But yeah. I did online too. I did it through sporties. Um, so yep, how do you like the same thing I did. Oh, is it? Are you still yep, like, how do you sporties. like it? Yep. It's pretty good actually. And for anyone out there who's going to pursue it, you know, they have, you know, you get your video and then you have review nights and then you have a quiz after each video so you can review. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible actually. Coming from the other end of the test, I will say that I thought that um, sporties sometimes ask you too many of the same question. Because there's like 999 possible questions, if not more, on the EAA exam. And so sometimes you get two practice questions in a row that were both about like the same regulation or something. Mm -hmm. So you got to take a lot of practice tests to hit all of them. But yeah, I mean, I think they did a fantastic job. Um, and so my 
immediate short-term goals are once COVID is kind of down or like once I have my shot, um, I want to start flying. Um, I definitely want to start working on the flight hours to get my PPL. And hey, it sounds like um, you can do it too. So maybe we'll be uh, taking test flights together. Um, And main goals for the Tribute Rosies this year are also um, to get our legs back under us after COVID, to grow the retail and the riveting programs, um, to uh, complete uh, the drill team season, the proper season, because we didn't get to March last year because of COVID. Um, So we want to do that successfully. Um, And just get everybody back into the fold and start um, doing fun things again. Yep. Well, hey, you'll be on the next B-25 pilot. Man, or, I think or that tri motor so or now, B17 or whatever. My hope is that we find more before I'm ready because it's going to take me a couple years, obviously. Um, so I wouldn't mind being like the eighth, ninth, or tenth, but someday, man, that would be yep. so yeah. awesome. Yep. Well, and I'm already, um, yeah, I'd hope eventually I'd like to be a flight engineer before a pilot because I don't think. Anna's probably going to beat me to that anyway, but being the youngest B-25 <laughs> pilot, but. Well, um, just because, you know, uh, whoever, it, basically what matters is that we all get up there, right? Like I'm also taking right. flight school with a buddy. Um, and so sometimes he gets tired and I push him. Sometimes I get tired and he pushes me. And I think if we all keep pushing each other, eventually we'll just have this awesome crew uh, one way or the other. Yep. Yeah, it'd be pretty neat. All right, so is there anything that I have not covered that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, um, I actually want to ask you, how did you decide to do this? And why do you think it's important to have young people around general aviation and warbirds in particular? Hmm, good question. Well, about how I got involved at the Air Museum? Yeah, and why did you decide to start a podcast? Okay, crazy, crazy long story. So long story short, um, you know, we've been living here for, you know, since I was born. So we've been around the Air Museum for a while. I can remember going there like a long time ago. But anyway, so we got involved, or I got involved 2019, Bomber Buffing Day. Dad saw on Facebook, so we went. And then I was interested in maybe doing something. So I was 13 at the time. Yeah. So we went over to Dave, Tom Carroll, who's the volunteer director. You know, he said, we'd like to be interested. And Bruce, the B-25 crew chief, just so happened to be walking the other way. And he hears me talking and he stops and he asks me like three questions or whatever. And so he's impressed by my knowledge. So the next Tuesday I show up and I've been there ever since. So That's awesome. And about the podcast? Yeah. So, hmm. Good question. I don't know. I don't know if it was really so much my desire to try and find out more, if it was to try and share all this awesomeness with the public, you know, because since I started working there, you know, my favorite times, um, you know, when you start hearing stories. So, you know, people tell everyone has a story, right? Mm-hmm. So the thing is, is, you know, trying to share that story, you know, and about aviation stuff like that. So I don't know, that's that in a nutshell. I love it. It's a great idea. And you will have endless material. Endless. Yeah. If I don't have something, I just walk over to another person and say, hey, um, you know. Yeah. And so. so why do you and Hannah think it's important to have young people in GA and Warbirds in particular? Well, that's a fairly obvious 
to me it's obvious <laughs> i'm like the only person in the hangar who's under 50 so yeah well actually no because there's two okay 2019 when i started volunteering i was like the only the only person under 50 in the hangar you know and most of the other guys are 70s 80s you know like even the airplanes themselves i'm constantly amazed you know you have this plane that was built in 1943 and it's still ticking 85 years later Granted, there are major issues with it, and granted, it is a beast to work on. So, speaking for myself, I think it's just, you know, the other guys on the crew have said this, you know, they're not going to be around forever, so who's going to take it up? You know, it's going to be you with the Rosies, and it's going to be, you know, people like Hannah and I with pilots, mechanics, you know? Yeah, that's sp- actually an important part of Yankees' um, five-year vision and strategy uh, is, or I forget what they call it, but their five-year vision for the museum is that they want to start training people for those critical um, positions or like making that more of part of the um, structure of the museum and the volunteer process. Yeah, because when I started volunteering, um, I like to say, so, man, that's, you know, part of this podcast stuff, you know, trying to push it out to other people and say, hey, look, if I could do it, guess what you can probably do, you know? Well, I would say if you can standardize that apprenticeship book process that you're talking about it might make it easier for more other people to get involved and see how fun it is at a young age yeah well i still yeah yeah and actually my first flight ever was in a b25 so wow um, not very many people can say that my brother's still envious you got to fly in a combat veteran ever played <laughs> yeah the combat veteran no less fun fact for you did you know that um the our B-25 was in the same squadron as astronaut Deke Slayton. No, I did not know that. Pretty cool, right? We just, uh, Ryan and I just found out that Deke Slayton was in that um, bomb group. Pretty awesome. Nice. No, yeah. I never, never heard of that before. Interesting. And, and there's always more to find out, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's so true. Yep. Okay, so final question here. You had, bear with me here, if you had the ability to time travel, unlimited cash, and a free hangar that no one was paying rent on, um, what three aircraft would you buy and why? I love this question. I love that you gave me unlimited cash too. Um, super yep. awesome. So I would have to say for sure, um, I want a yak, like what Lily Litvak flew um, for the fighter squadrons in Russia. I want, I'm not 100% sure that I have the name right, but is it a Bell X1? Is that what Chuck Yeager flew? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You said unlimited Bell money. X1. So I was like, heck yeah, I want that airplane. I want to learn how to yep. fly it. Um, I mean, I know you just like drop it from a B-29 and light it on fire. So I'm not sure how much, you know, flight training you need for that, but I'm assuming it's a lot. So unlimited money, unlimited funds. I'm going for the X-1. And then the third, of course, would be like what my dad's shirt said in 1984, which was like, bring a Willow Run built B-24 to Yankee Air Museum. I would take my unlimited funds, buy that B-24 and gift it to the museum as long as they made it flying. Right. Yeah. Well, the closest they've come is a PB-4Y, I think. Mm-hmm. Just the naval, navalized version. So. It's acceptable, but I'm sure because, you know, there's like five left or whatever. Um, one of mm-hmm. them is in like Alabama at some Air Force Museum and one of them's at Duxford. One of those museums would generously accept a $10 million donation um, in exchange for the B-24 yeah. Yeah. or whatever. So yeah, thank well, you for giving well, me unlimited money. Yeah. Yeah, it's always funny to hear your answer to that question. So far, I've had two F-16s. One was another guy in the B-25 crew who said, you know what? I want an F-16, you know? I, I thought wanted- about it because it would be fun, wouldn't it? 
yeah. And the other guy flew the F-16 for like 25 years or whatever in the Air Force, and he couldn't get rid of his love for it, so. Aw, yeah. that's cute, yeah. What about you? Yeah. What would you pick? Good question. One, B-25, obviously, hands down. It's just a brute of an airplane. You know, it produces 3,400 horsepower, big radial engines. You know, you sit in it, when the, when the pilots start up, you sit in the back, and the tail is just shaking, you know. <laughs> I've never it's, ridden in one yet, so. You haven't? No, we're, I know. We're I get want you to. Board. We'll I get you really want to. Yep. And then probably a Corsair um, F4U4. Just be able sure. to go fast and pull aerobatics and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know. Maybe like a Gulfstream or something. You know, something that's ridiculously expensive. But, you know, I can also use it as a camera platform. Oh, um, that's a good choice. Or maybe a Citation. Something like that. Mm -hmm. something to fool around the country and you know would still be able to go pretty fast and with good range well i mean i mean i guess you're gonna have to monetize this podcast you got a really expensive dream sheet there well yours isn't exactly too uh, cost budget from no <laughs> i know i know uh a girl can dream yeah well look at the what the roses did yeah, yeah, they all dreamed. There you go. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely a very, um, you've got a mind of a writer bringing it full circle like that. I like it. Thanks. Yep. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and end the recording here. Thanks for talking to me tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Austin. listening to the Aeronaut Podcast. Please leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Subscribe, and we'll be back in 10 days with another great interview. So long.